would turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I trust that you were encouraged and blessed last week, um, those of you that were able to be here by Adam Cutshaw and his message that he brought. I was able to listen to some of that from uh, where I was and uh, know that hopefully that will stir some of you that maybe were on the fence to come and sign up and be a part of that church retreat in May. He's going to be speaking to the adults there regularly. We have someone else who will be engaging the children and the youth as well, but I hope you'll put that on the top of your agenda. Thank you for praying for me and uh, Levi and Jude as we were away last week in North Africa. We did make it back. One of the things that was required uh, was a COVID test to come back. We had to have one to get into the country over there, one to come back to the country here. So it's a little bit nerve-wracking, you know, what's this going to show? Is it going to be accurate? All that kind of stuff running through our mind because we wanted to get home. Who would have known it had been snow and ice that would have delayed us and caused us to go all around the world and, and to get here? Um, but, yeah, so they, they weren't giving them in the city we were in. This city's 200-plus thousand people, so it's not a small city. They just, they're not counting heads as carefully as we are. They, you know, live life uh, and do their thing. And... Um, so we would have had to drive an hour and a half and have to sit there all day amongst probably sick people. That, those are the ones that get tested over there, the ones that are really sick. And um, like I didn't really want to sit amongst that. So we find this guy who drives up and meets us on the street corner. This is, he just like pulls up in his car and gets out. And, and uh, I, you know, I'm going to be the big boy. I'm going to go first because I'm the oldest. And you know, he says, Levi, and he sits, just sits down in the back seat of his car Rips open the swab, throws the trash in the street, does his thing, throws the end of the stick in the street, seals it up. Jude, he's, I'm like, well, I wanted to go first, you know. I was going to take one for the team. And he got Jude next, and then he says, big boss, sit down. He gets me, throws all the trash in the street, drives away, and we just, I said, I'm not giving him a dime until I get some kind of paperwork back that says I'm okay. And he delivered about 7 o'clock next night, so we were able to, to come home, thankfully. Uh, but I appreciate your prayers. <clears throat> that was, it was definitely a, an experience. You'll hear a little bit about that this morning. Uh, mainly going to see the work in this part of uh, North Africa and the need there that is great. Uh, Luke chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 1, we're going to look at verse 1 down through verse number 24. Luke number, chapter number 14. Uh, let's look at verses 1 down through verse 24. We're just going to walk our way through the text together. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, says, It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. They were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He'd already dealt with this. He'd already been confronted with this. He knew what they were thinking. They knew what he was thinking. So they kept silent in verse 4. And he took hold of him. He took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well 
and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. And they can make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests. So we've got the Pharisees here. He's, he, he directs his attention to them. And then after the healing of the man with dropsy, he directs his attention to the people who have been invited. All of the, all of the Jews who were in cahoots with the Pharisees. Those who were respected by the Pharisees. And he began speaking a parable in verse 7 to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then, in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 12, he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, like this man with dropsy I just healed. Invite those kind of people, and you'll be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It is as, as, as if he says, Thank God we're all going to be there for the great resurrection day feast. Aren't we excited? And he raises his wine and toasts it with the person next to him. But look what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to him, A man was giving a big dinner. And he invited many, and at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. And the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story that we read, these parables that we see, this encounter that we observe. And we need your help. We need your help to understand. We need your help to believe we need your help to apply this to our lives and we need your help to make us different 
God, help today not be just another Sunday where we gather together and do our thing, but help us to hear your still small voice and respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to move through this pretty rapidly, so don't panic. Um, Luke chapter 14, we're going to go back to verse 1. Look at what we see. It happened that when he went to the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. They were watching him closely. Immediately when I read this, I realized that if, if you name the name of Jesus, someone is watching you closely. We might need to be reminded of that this morning, that if you name the name of Jesus, someone is watching you closely always. It may be your spouse, it may be your child, it may be a a, a sibling, it may be your parent, it may be a friend, it may be a co-worker, it may be a classmate, It, it might be someone you can't even imagine, that you don't even realize is watching you, but someone is always watching you. And if you name the name of Jesus Christ, You need, I need, we all need to live like someone is watching us because they are. And it might be this morning that you just need to stop and realize that you, you need to repent. And you need to ask God to forgive you for how you have represented his name to those in your workplace to those in your school, to those that you are friends with, to those in your family, and represent Him more accurately. If you name the name of Jesus, someone is watching you closely. So they were were watching Him closely. Now, why were they watching? They were watching Him closely to see what He was going to do on the Sabbath day. Because in verse 2, we see that there was in front of Him a man suffering from dropsy. Now, right in front of him, there's a man suffering from from dropsy. Now, I want us to be reminded of the fact that we need to always, always, always have the ends of the earth on our hearts and on our minds. We always, always, always need to have the least reached people on planet earth before our hearts and before our minds And in our prayers, this is the Great Commission. This is what Jesus left us here to do. This is what the church is for. The church is not just to get together and enjoy one another's company. The church is not a place just to get together and learn something new. The church is not a place to get together and sing and get the feels, you know, when we come together on Sunday morning. The church ultimately is left here for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is all about the least reached peoples on planet Earth. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, and some of this isn't on the screen because it was done at 30,000 feet in an airplane, and they didn't have it, so just bear with me. But you know, Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. That word, all nations there, is the word pontita ethne. We've already talked about this. This is not talking about geographical borders. This is talking about people groups, distinct 
peoples, with distinct cultures, distinct languages, distinct religions. And the Great Commission is, we are to go and make disciples of all of the Pantata ethne on planet Earth. We are to go and make disciples of all of the peoples and nations on planet Earth. The Great Commission is not, go and make disciples of as many people as possible. That gives us the, the right and the freedom to say, well, you know, I'm just, I'm evangelizing everybody I know, everybody that's around me, that's my thing. That's my calling. Listen, it's good. It's good to do that. It's good to make disciples of as many people as we know. That's great. We want to do that. We need to do that. But that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not make disciples of as many people as possible. The Great Commission is make disciples of as many people groups as possible. And that's why you see Paul moving constantly from one people to another people. That's why you see the apostles scatter out across the globe because they understood that the gospel of the kingdom had to be proclaimed to all peoples before the end would come. So the Great Commission is have the least reached peoples before us. Listen, I was just in a place for a week that has just in this one province... 800,000 to a million people. Now wrap your mind around this. 800,000 to a million people in this province. There are zero churches. There are zero native pastors. There are three, three full-time workers who speak the language. There to reach... 800,000 to a million people. And we have churches on every single solitary corner. Listen, in this place, the Jehovah's False Witnesses and the Mormons aren't even there. The Catholics aren't there. There's nobody there. Nobody there but three that speak the language that have given their life to reach 800,000 to a million people. There are 20,000 people roughly in this city. And how many churches? How many professing Christians? How many pastors? How many ministries? How many more do we need? We need to wrap our minds around that and never let that leave the forefront of our mind. But... We also, we also can't dream about that. We can't dream about that out there and miss who God has put right in front of us either. And Jesus comes to this place on the Sabbath day to have a meal. And right in front of him is a man suffering with dropsy. So we need to ask ourselves, who is in front of me? Yes, we need to be thinking about the ends of the earth, but we also need to ask, who is it in front of me? Who is it that God has placed in front of you, in your life, in your circle, that you can engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Listen, the least, the least we can do, the least we can do is to invite that person or those people to this place on Easter Sunday. It's the Sunday of the year that most people are most likely to accept an invitation to church. 
We've got a guest speaker coming in who preaches the gospel all over the country. That's what he does. That's what he's gifted at. The least we can do is invite them to this place. We can't keep using COVID as an excuse. We don't have a problem gathering at the Mexican restaurant, shoulder to shoulder. We don't have a problem going up and down the aisles at Walmart. We don't have a problem going up and down the aisles of Lowe's or Home Depot. We don't have a problem fighting for the sale at Kroger and touching the keypads that everybody else has touched in the self-checkout line. So we cannot keep saying, well, we can't invite people to church because COVID. Don't buy the party line, people. If we can rub shoulders everywhere else, we can rub shoulders here. Invite, the, invite those people to Easter. That, that there's the people that are in front of you. That's my challenge to you right now. Who is God put in front of you? Invite them to Easter. That's the least we can do. Rant over verse number three. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, he's, he, is, he is preemptively striking here. They're watching him. Here we've got a guy in front of him with dropsy. He already knows the judgment calls that are being made in their minds and in their hearts. They're looking at him judgmentally. And he, he answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and he healed him. And he sent him away. Notice that he didn't just heal him. He healed him and sent him away. And it is very rude he may have sent him away to get him out of that room of religious people who were going to squash any hope he had of finding Jesus, but he sent him away. And, and I thought about the fact that Jesus had a pattern of sending people away. He healed a leper, sent him away. He cast a legion of demons out of a demoniac, sent him away. He blinds Paul on the road to Damascus, tells him to get up, sends him away. And the Great Commission, he sends us all away. He doesn't call us to sit, soak, and sire away. He sends us away. In the Great Commission, He has sent us all away. Don't wait for a special calling. We have a call. You want the call from above? I need to hear a call from above. Isaiah 6, whom will I send? Who will go for us? I need to hear a call from beneath. There's a rich man who went to hell. And he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers that they come not to this place. Is that loud enough? Well, I need a call from over there. I need a call from around. There's a Macedonian man who says, come over here and help us. Well, I just need a call from within. If you have the Holy Spirit, he should be groaning in you and compelling you to preach the gospel. If that's not enough, you have a call in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If Jesus brought us to himself, he has sent us away as well. Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going in your prayers? Where are you going with your giving? Where are you going with your feet? We've reduced the Great Commission to a special call and forgotten that it's a command. Verse 5 and 6, He said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? He sent the man away and then he then he deals with them. Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. He's already had this conversation more than once in Luke chapter 13. We just saw a couple of weeks ago a woman who was bent over 
She's been bent over for, for years. Jesus releases her from that bondage. He said it was in bondage to Satan. He releases her on the Sabbath day, and, and he scolds them there. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, he asks them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable than is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. They were judging him for healing a man for doing good on the Sabbath. Now Jesus just takes the reins. I like this because Jesus takes the reins. He's being judged by them for healing a man with dropsy on the Sabbath day. He takes the reins and says, now let me offer a little judgment for you. Let me, let me turn this around and judge the situation that I see in verse 7. He began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had, they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is just common sense. This is just Jesus speaking common sense here. You guys are clamoring for the first place at the table. Everybody's wanting to see who they can rub shoulders with. You know, I know so-and-so. Name drop. You know, they're name dropping at the Pharisee meal. And they're seeing who they can rub shoulders with. They're seeing who they can sit next to. They're, they're clamoring for the place of honor. And Jesus just says, stop, because this is going to backfire. Don't exalt yourself. Humble yourself. And be exalted. And people... Maybe like no other time in history, we live in a time of self-exalting. We live in a time of self-exalting. I mean, we've come up with a word, selfies. I mean, it used to be people would pose and mom or dad would take a picture of the family or the kids or, or somebody playing. Now, I would estimate 80% of pictures taken... Or selfies. I know I've told you this before. I saw someone pull up to a red light in town and take a selfie at a red light. Why? We are so enamored with ourselves. We're so enamored with ourselves. We take pictures of ourselves. And we're so enamored with what other people think of us, we take them up here. And you all know why you take them up there. Because if you take them down here, they're going to see your double, triple chin. You take them up here. So you look skinnier than you are. You all know that's true. We want to be exalted. That is why we have social media. We don't have social media to communicate for the most part. We have social media to post on there how great we are. And everybody else should think how great we are. Because there's a little button down there that gives them an opportunity to like it. And show how great we are. And you know, if we post something and we don't get a lot of likes, we automatically go, oh, it's a horrible day. I mean, I've got three square meals. I've got a roof over my head. I've got some clothes. I've got a job. I've got some money in the bank. I've got, but they didn't like my, my, my picture. Why do we feel that way? Because we live in a time of self-exalting. We want to be lifted up. And listen, we, we, we need to always remember 
that the reason Satan fell from heaven was because he was self-exalting. You want to talk about adultery? You want to talk about abuse? We want to talk about all the sins of our day that we want to list out and make the worst of the worst? When the worst of the worst may be doing our good deeds before men so that they can exalt us. I mean, Matthew chapter 6, if you just turn back there, listen to what Jesus says. Now, it doesn't matter if we agree with this. You know, it's a different time. They didn't have social media in Matthew chapter 6. Now, that matters. Jesus is right and we're wrong. If we conflict, if we conflict, doesn't matter what we believe, what we agree with, what we disagree with, Jesus is right and we are wrong. Just that simple. And Jesus gives us some prescriptions here For how we operate, in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, he says, Beware, warning, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Listen to what he just said. You can give a million dollars to the impoverished. And you snap that selfie and write that little blog post. You have your reward. He says, he says, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. The reward they have in full is the applause of the religious people who say, Oh, is it, that just warms my heart. When you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Drop down to verse number 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do you see how counter this is to our self-exalting world we live in? Now, I know that complicates things when, you, when you're a missionary on the field and you need to send home a newsletter. We've done nothing. Only the Lord knows. That doesn't generate a lot of funds, usually. doesn't generate a lot of support, a lot of prayer. So I know there's a fine line there. We need to be careful that what we're doing is with pure motive and not self-exalting motives. Don't seek to be praised or exalted, but humble yourself and serve. Jesus says, take the lower spot. Verse 12, when he, he went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or dinner, he's spoken to the Pharisees, he's spoken to the man with the dropsy, he's spoken to all the guests, and I'm just not going to leave the room like it, everybody. Now he speaks to the man who planned the dinner. 
He went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Look at what happens in verse 15. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And his thought is, blessed are all of us Jews. You, you know, the Messiah is going to bring the Jews into the kingdom of God, and we're going to be the chosen people, and it's going to be all about us. Jesus tells a parable in verse 16 that spins all of that on its head. He said to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike begin to make excuses. This man's giving a great banquet. This is a huge event put on by an obviously very wealthy man. And every one of these kind of events had two invitations. We don't need to miss this cultural nuance. There were two invitations. The first invitation was to, to say, You are invited to the party. Are you going to come to the party? And they say, Yes, we will, or no, we won't. The second invitation was to say, the party's ready. We're about to throw this thing. Time to come to the party. So there's two invitations. The first invitation goes out to these people, these these guests, and apparently they all say, put us on the list. We're going to be there. But then, when the second invitation comes and it's time to show up for the party, they all start making excuses. They had all verbally and clearly responded to the invitation. They all made their reservations. But now that it's time to affirm their invitation with their actions, they start to make excuses. We all know people like this. You plan for. You plan for this person who's going to show up. We're going to do a Bible study. We've got three people in the Bible, in our, in our discipleship group. And that one person, you just never know if they're going to show up or they roll up. They can say they're going to be there. They can send you a text an hour before. I'm going to be there. Yes, I'll see you there. And then... You're just kind of holding your breath, wondering, is this person going to show? And then they start making excuses. Well, you know, I felt a little weary. My kid wanted me to read a book to him. I needed to buy some dog food. Fill in the blank. That's exactly what this guy runs into. The first one says to him, I bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Who buys land without looking at it? Surprise, it's in a flood zone. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Who buys a car without test driving it? Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. He's the only guy with a legitimate excuse. <laughs> well, he, he thought he had a legitimate excuse because actually the Old, Testament, the Old Testament says you don't have to go off to war if you've just married a wife. So he's trying to play that card. You know, he's using the scriptures. I'm, let, me, let me put a verse with my excuse. I've married a wife. Can't come. No, doesn't apply to parties. It applies to war. This guy's put a tremendous amount of effort, work, and expense into this banquet, into this party. And his tremendous act of generosity and kindness is returned with indifference. Think about that. His tremendous act of generosity and kindness is returned with indifference. Huh, I'm going to plow my oxen. That can't wait. You've already bought them. Why can't it wait? I'm going to go check out my land. 
It can't wait. Why can't it wait? You've already bought it. I've married a wife. If you can't leave her at home, bring her with you. This tremendous act of generosity and kindness is returned with indifference. And the greatest act, the greatest act of generosity ever, the greatest act of kindness ever, is that God in the flesh would not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to, but He would humble Himself and take on the form of a servant and would be born in the likeness of men and would be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the greatest act of generosity. How many of you have given up heaven? How many of you have given up equality with God? How many of you have taken on the form of a servant and died on a cross for someone else? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He made Him who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is the greatest act of generosity, the greatest act of kindness ever known to man, that the one who knew no sin, had no concept of sin, had no taste for sin, would be made sin so that God, the Father, could judge our sin, our guilt, our iniquity in Him on the cross and so that we could be made righteous because of Him. And how many of us respond to that generous and kind invitation with indifference? You see, we can verbally make our profession and say, yes, Lord. Just like the men of this parable, yes, we'll come. We want to be at the party. And then go right on in spiritual and daily indifference. How many of you spend your days and indifference to the gospel. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everybody who says, I want to come to the party, shows up at the party. It's just not dishonoring for these people to say, we'll be there, make all the plans, prepare all the food, and then ditch them. For such pitiful excuses. This is, this is considered outrageous. This is considered unacceptable conduct. And in some ancient Near Eastern traditions, this, this was equal to a declaration of war. These folks fixing to saddle their camels and go kill some people. That's how offensive this was. No excuse is valid. No excuse is valid. You have said you're coming. No excuses valid. We're going to war. I want you to hold on to that till next week. We're going to war. So Jesus offers us the greatest act of generosity and kindness. And we respond with indifference. We respond with excuses. And you need to hear me say this morning that no excuse is valid. You die, you stand before God. Well, you know there was a hypocritical, filthy, no-count preacher in my life that turned me off to Jesus. Sorry, not good enough. There was a hypocritical deacon. Not good enough. That church is full of hypocrites. Not good enough. I struggled to understand the deep things of Scripture. Not good enough. 
I couldn't get my life together. Not good enough. Uh, can we go on and on and on? I was busy. Not good enough. I needed to store up retirement. Not good enough. I needed to buy a bigger house, fancier cars, more clothes. Not good enough. My kids were heathen. Not good enough. None of it is good. And there's no excuse valid. What excuses have you been making for refusing to surrender to Christ? And come to the party. It's a party, folks. It's not like, well, now I'm going to be a Christian and my life's going to be miserable from here on out. Didn't you see Deacon Dan down there at the church? I mean, he always looked miserable because he was always having to do stuff he didn't want to do. He was always having to avoid the fun stuff he wanted to do. That's not Christianity. That's religion. Christianity is, I no longer want to do the things I used to do and I want to do the things I used to not want to do and now I'm happy. I'm excited. It's a party. It's, it's life abundant. Have you seen all the people having fun, addicted to meth? Well, that's not a joke. I'm saying for real, have you seen all the people having fun that are addicted to meth? That doesn't look fun to me. Who are living out of wedlock with a guy who doesn't work and who abuses them? That doesn't look real fun to me. We could go on and on and on and on. That's not fun. That's a counterfeit. Jesus is saying, come to the party and don't make any excuses this morning. We've got a problem now. Not only are we almost out of time, but we have a problem now here. We've got a massive banquet prepared, nobody to come to the party. The Jews have made their excuses. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes, the Jewish religious leaders, they've made their excuses. And finally, just... Crucify him, let his blood be on us and on our children's hands. The massive banquet has been prepared and none of them came, for the most part, as a whole. But the celebration will go on. Every seat will be filled. But they're going, those seats are going to be filled by the most unlikely people. Verse 21, the slave came back, reported this to his master, and the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them, compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. Who do they invite now? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes, the rich, the Jewish, the religious? No. They go out and find the crippled. They go out and find the blind, the lame, the sick, the hurting, the sinners, the Gentiles like us. We're talking about beggars and outcasts. According to the Jews, we are beggars and outcasts here this morning. Gentiles. Living in the slums. And yet we're invited Remember Luke 13, verses 18 and 19. What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his own garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Remember what the birds of the air represented? All the peoples. Luke 13, 29. They will come from east, west, north, south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. They, they, listen, his followers... His servants have gone into the highways and into the hedges to the poor, to the crippled, to the lame, to the sick, to the sinner, to the lowest of the low like us. And it's come, there is room. Fill up my house. Compel them to come. And that word compel is a very strong word. It, it literally gives us a picture of them grabbing them by the nap of the neck and dragging them to the party. 
These people would take a lot of convincing that they were really wanted at a banquet like this. You, mean, you, don't, you don't mean me. This is a setup. No, you're coming. You're going to have to compel these people because they know their unworthiness. They know they can't repay what is being offered. They can never do enough. They can never be good enough. Rich enough. Faithful enough. These are humble people, broken people, sick people, sinners like us. And he's saying, come to the party. Don't get your life together. Don't get healed first. Come on. He's inviting you this morning. The Bible ends like this. In Revelation twenty-two seventeen. 17, some of the very last verses of the Bible, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Spirit and the Bride, the Holy Spirit and the church say, Come! This morning, the Holy Spirit of God and the church made up of true believers that's around you, they're both in unison and in harmony saying, Come! Let the one who hears say, Come! Let the one who is thirsty come! Let the one who wishes, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Do you want it this morning? Do you want the water of life this morning? You can have it without cost. What is your excuse? Verse 24, we're reminded of how dangerous it is. To refuse the invitation of God. How dangerous it is to refuse the invitation of God. For verse 24 says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Let me just tell you, there's a chance that you reject the invitation of the Spirit and the Bride this morning and you walk out of those doors and you never have another chance and once time has expired for your life you will never ever get another chance there's no appeals in eternity there's no second chances in eternity you get one chance you get one chance. And let me tell you what we all do in this one chance we have. We blow it. We destroy it. <laughs> Our chances live perfect. Never sin. Be holy as He is holy. And we absolutely blow it. But Jesus Christ came and did everything we were supposed to do in our place. And Jesus Christ came and stepped in to take our penalty in full so that anyone who wants to take and drink this morning can turn from their sin, throw their sins upon His mercy and grace and surrender and be made new. And if you miss that, and, this, and the hourglass runs out for you. It's too late. 
and no excuse will be valid. So I want to invite you this morning to ask yourself, to, to lay yourself before the Holy Spirit and allow Him to search you and find in you, are you His child? Are you coming to the party? Or are you living with indifference? You've heard it all before. You filled out the card, but you're living with indifference. Would you bow with me? Let's just spend a few moments in prayer. Miss Lisa's going to begin to play softly. Would you right now just pray and ask the Holy Spirit? Sincerely, honestly, would you just ask the Holy Spirit to affirm where you stand with Him right now? To give you assurance and joy that you're going to be at the greatest party, the greatest banquet, the greatest wedding feast ever imaginable. Or to stir in you a deep sense of concern and conviction. That you may have, you may have made your reservations, so to speak, but you, you're, you're indifferent and you're... You're not following Christ. You've never been transformed by His mercy and His grace. You've never been made a new creation. You've been doing the religious thing. You've been checking your boxes, trying to do the best you can. Like a good Jew, like a good Muslim, like a good Buddhist, like a good Hindu, not like a good Baptist. But not a Christian. Allow the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to affirm or to convict And if the Holy Spirit is affirming you right now, why don't you pray for those that He may be convicting? Why don't you celebrate and look forward to the hope of that wedding feast that's coming? And if God is convicting you, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you now, I want you to pray, I want you to cry out to God in repentance Asking Him to cleanse you, to forgive you, to wash you, to purify you. Throw yourself on His mercy and grace. Call upon His name to save you, to transform you, to give you the assurance that you need. And you cry out to Him. You cry out to Him until He gives you that assurance. Father, we thank You for Your love, Your grace, Your mercy, Your spirit. We thank You. That the Spirit and the Bride both say, come, even now. Come and take, come and drink if you're thirsty. God, I pray that you would affirm those who are your children. Grant them peace, joy, assurance. Those who are not, for whatever reason, may, whether they're disillusioned or deceived or disinterested, whatever the case may be, that you would convict them and, and challenge them and call them to yourself. Grant them repentance. Grant them faith even now as they call upon your name. Do a work of regeneration in their hearts and in their lives. Give them that water that springs from the well that never runs dry. We pray it. We ask it in Jesus' name. We're going to stand.